Numbers chapter 9. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege and the honor that you've given us this morning to come into your presence and to hear from you. Thank you, Father, that you have preserved your word. We know that the word which is before us today is inerrant. It is infallible. It is accurate. It is absolute in its authority. And thank you, Father, that it is living and active and able to deal with the very depth of who we are. And we ask that today, Lord, you would deal with us. You would deal with us wonderfully, that you would draw us by your loving kindness, that you would teach us and train us for righteousness, that you would correct us and rebuke us, that you would make us adequate, ready for every good work that you would lay out before us for your kingdom and your honor and your glory. And so we ask, Father, that you would send the Holy Spirit to instruct us now. That you, Lord, would author my thoughts and my words. That we would not hear from man. We would hear from the living God through his living word. Please do that today. In Jesus' name, amen. Numbers chapter 9, just looking in verse 22. Numbers 9, 22. It says, whether it was two days or a month or a year that the cloud lingered over the tabernacle, staying above it, the sons of Israel remained camped and did not set out. But when it was lifted, lifted, they did set out. Here the Lord is leading the children of Israel through the wilderness into the promised land and into the promises that he has for them. And he would lead them by a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire during the night. And they would know that they arrived at the place where they were to camp out when the cloud or the pillar of fire would stop. When that cloud would stop, they would pitch their tents, they would get everything ready, and they would just camp. They would just stay there. And no matter how long it was, they didn't dare move from that place where the Lord had them until the cloud moved on. And then when the cloud began to move, they would say, okay, cool, we're finished here. And they would pack up their stuff, and they would follow the Lord. The Lord has us as a church camping out on this theme of prayer. The cloud has stopped right here, so to speak. He's been leading us as a church through the book of Colossians. He's been leading us as a church and as a people into his promises that he has for us. And now, behold, the cloud has stopped. And it has stopped wonderfully on this topic of prayer. The Lord is dealing with us and speaking with us. And we dare not get anxious. Can you imagine the children of Israel there in the camp saying, Come on, cloud, just move. Lord, we're sick of this. Just go. It says they didn't do that. It says whether it was two days or a month or a year, they camped where the Lord had them. I don't know how long the Lord is going to have us camped out in this subject of prayer. But we will camp until the cloud moves. Amen? And the reason the Lord has us here is because there's wonderful things that He wants to do in our midst. There are amazing promises that He wants to deliver. I am believing the Lord for more on this coastline. Not that I'm ungrateful for what the Lord has done. But wouldn't you agree 
that if this was all the, ever, all the Lord ever did, and this is as far as we ever went as a church, that we would just kind of be left going, wow, Lord, I believe you for so much more. It seems, Lord, that there's so much more that you could do, so much more power that we could see, so much more salvation, so much more grace, so much more healing and renewal and refreshing and restoring. Lord, more. And I believe the Lord wants to do more. And so he's got us camped out in this place to teach us some things, to draw us into a new depth of prayer, because prayer is the channel through which the blessings of God flow. Prayer is the channel through which the blessings of God flow. That is why God wants us to pray more, church, because he wants to bless us more. And because he wants to bless our community more. And he wants to do more through us and around us and in our midst. He asks us to pray, not that he might lord something over us or say, see, there they are praying. He does it because he is our father. And we are his precious children. And he wants to give us good gifts and good things. Remember Romans, excuse me, remember Revelation chapter 5 verse 8. This is a prayer so the saints are as golden bowls full of incense before the Lord. Your prayers are so precious that he keeps them in that language. They're in golden bowls. I mean, what do you have that you keep in a golden bowl? Something very precious if you even have a golden bowl. Our prayers are so wonderful, wonderful before the Lord, so meaningful, so profound, so precious to Him. He stores them up, and there they are before the throne. And the question that I want to pose to us congregationally and individually today is this. Do you, do we, have all that the Lord wants us to have? Do you have everything that the Lord has for you? Do we have everything that the Lord has for us? Church, we do not. There are some blessings that come to you simply because you are a child of God. There are other blessings that to receive, you must grab the tree by the trunk and shake it until the fruit falls from the tree, as Charles Spurgeon once said. And I believe that God has us in this place of shaking the tree. And I think that, church, as we continue in the study of prayer, the agony of victory, part five, I think that we ought to feel honored by the Lord. Honored by the Lord. I think there ought to be this overwhelming sense of gratitude of God. Thank you that you are calling us to pray. Thank you that you are calling us to intercede. The Lord has found us because we learned in the Old Testament last week in Ezekiel 22 that he looks for someone who will stand in the gap. And apparently the Lord has found some people among you, among us. Because he's camping out with us here, speaking to us. And we ought to just feel so honored that the Lord is saying, speak to me more. I want to hear more from you, Reality Carpenteria. I want to hear more from you individually. Speak to me more. I want to give you more. It reminds me of Joshua chapter 3, verse 5, where before a great battle, Joshua said to the children of Israel, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. I can't help but sense that we're, on, we're in that place. That the Lord is going to do wonders in our midst, not for wonder's sake, for His glory, for the furtherance of His kingdom, for the repairing and healing and refreshing of His people. And so Joshua said to the children of Israel, Consecrate yourselves. 
Because tomorrow the Lord is going to do awesome things. Now, what does it mean to consecrate yourself? It means to dedicate, to devote, to set apart, and to keep separated. To dedicate, to devote, to set apart, and to keep separated. Joshua said to the children of Israel, dedicate yourselves. Devote yourselves. Separate yourselves unto the purposes and the holiness of God, for tomorrow He will do wonderful things. I believe the Lord is speaking that to us. And we're told in Romans chapter 12, verse 12, that we are to devote ourselves to prayer. That this is to be a season in our lives individually and corporately where we are consecrated in the area of prayer, where we are devoted to prayer. It's a command to the church. Paul was writing to Timothy, who was a young pastor. Paul had left him to pastor the church in Ephesus there. And he was writing to him a letter. We call it 1 Timothy. And he said to him at the very beginning of chapter 2, first of all, now understand that in this letter to Timothy, Paul is going to let this young pastor know how the church ought to run, how it ought to look, what should be going on in the church. And so he says to him, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, first of all, before anything else, above all else, paramount, Most importantly, first of all then, Paul writes, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. Therefore, verse 8, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Paul says that the first occupation, the first consideration, the first job, the first... uh, thing in the church ought to be prayer on behalf of all men. He says, I am urging that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men. Therefore, I want the men in every place, he says, to pray. This is the word of God. This is God speaking to you men. I want the men in every place to pray. He doesn't say I want them to pray eloquently. He doesn't say, I want them to pray long prayers. He doesn't say, I want them to impress people. He just says, I want men to pray and to lift up holy hands. The Hebrews used to lift their hands in prayer. They would lift their hands in prayer as if they were sending them off to the Lord and as if they were receiving from the Lord. They would say, oh Lord, and then they would go like this and receive from the Lord. He says, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands. Holy because they've been washed by the blood of Jesus. In prayer. First of all, it ought to be the first occupation, the primary concern of the church, both individually as it is made up of individuals and corporately. There should come into your life now, right about now. What's the date? March 5th? There ought to come into your life right about now on March 5th, 2006, this understanding that there should be in your life a sense that prayer is a primary occupation. I know we all fall short. I don't have to preach about that. I know that. The Lord isn't asking us about that. He's just saying, will you make prayer a priority? Individually, as you make up the church, and corporately, as we are the church. There ought to be in the church the aroma and the attitude of prayer continually. Remembering that prayer at its very core, the simplest definition of prayer is to come to. To come to. Prayer in its simplest form is just coming to the Lord. Just coming and speaking to Him and listening to Him. 
I understand that prayer is something that you can grow in and you can become more proficient and efficient at, but there should never be this sense of, I don't know how to pray. It's very simple. Just come to the Lord and tell him what's on your heart. He knows what you have need of beforehand, but he wants you to ask and he wants to hear your voice and he wants to speak to you. Prayer is to come to. Jesus gave an invitation to prayer in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 29, when he said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. Look what Jesus said. You have problems? Come to me. Are you weary? Come to me. Are you heavy laden? Do you need rest? Are you stressed out and messed up? The Lord says, come to me. We shouldn't let our problems drive us away from the Lord or our sin issues drive us away from the Lord. The Lord says, are you weighed down with the reality of sin and life? Come to me. And I will give you rest for your souls. He says, I'm gentle and I'm humble. Just come and learn from me. Or as the King James translates it, learn of me. And you will find rest for your soul. That is an incredible invitation to prayer. I am gentle and humble in heart. And you shall find rest. And we love that about Jesus, don't we? We love how gentle Jesus is. We love how kind the Lord is. We come to him in need and we expect that. We expect the kindness, the gentleness, the mercy, and the grace of the Lord. He's so wonderful, and that is so right. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 says, Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. It is a throne of grace, that throne that he's on. That we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in the time of need. Now, we understand that we don't deserve it. We know that. We've all got this sense of, man, I failed the Lord, and I sinned, and I blew it, and I don't deserve it. By definition, we don't deserve mercy. If we deserved it, it wouldn't be called mercy. By definition, grace is undeserved, unwarranted, unmerited. We haven't done anything to deserve it. And yet the invitation of the Lord is, come boldly to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and that we might find grace to help in the time of need. And it is when we draw near to the Lord in prayer that the grace, the mercy, and the power of God are brought into a situation. You understand that? I mean, are you like me that in your life you need God's grace and mercy and power to flood a situation? It's too much for you. It's beyond you. It's too heavy, it's too gnarly, it's too scary, you can't do it. And you need the grace and the mercy and the power of the Lord. The Lord simply says to you, church, enter boldly into my throne room that you may find it. And the conduit is prayer. It is through prayer that the grace and the mercy and the power and the blessings of God enter into a situation. I mean, that's what happened in Exodus 32 last week. God was going to come against Israel in judgment, and Moses prayed for mercy. And God's mercy entered the situation. 
That's what was needed in Mark chapter 9 where there was a demon-possessed boy and the disciples couldn't cast it out. The Lord said it was because of their lack of faith and their lack of prayer. Prayer would have released what was needed in that situation. That's the prescription given to us in James 5.16. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. Prayer is a conduit for God's grace and blessings and power and mercy. And gentle, humble Jesus has all of it. And he's so wonderful. Jesus is the one that touched the lepers. Didn't he touch the leper? Nobody in Israel ever touched a leper. In fact, when the leper was coming down the road, he had to cover himself and yell, unclean, unclean, so that everybody could part in front of him and yell and run and hide. Jesus didn't look at lepers. He didn't say, be cleansed, now go away. Jesus touched the lepers. Jesus is the one that saw the widow weeping because her son died, and Jesus raised the boy from the dead. Jesus is so wonderful and merciful. He's the one who scooped children up in his arms and suffered the children to come unto me. And you should become like one of these, the Lord said, as he held little kids. Jesus is the one that when there were the multitude that was hungry, multiplied the bread and the fish that they might eat. Jesus is the one that heard the cry of the blind man, Have mercy on me, son of David, the blind man said. And the Lord healed him. He's the one who healed the legs of the lame. Jesus is the one that forgave and cleansed the prostitute. Jesus is the one that had mercy on the woman who was caught in adultery. Jesus is the one that stood over Jerusalem and wept over it, saying, how long I have wanted to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you wouldn't have it. Jesus is the one that allowed John to recline upon his chest at the Last Supper, that wonderful picture of intimacy. Jesus is the one that restored Peter on the beach even after Peter denied him three times saying, may God kill me and damn me if I'm lying. I don't know Jesus. Jesus is the one that met him on the beach that morning and restored him and used him and blessed him. That's Jesus, man. That's the things that Jesus does. That's who he is. That's who's inviting us to come to him when we're weary and heavy laden. But there's one more picture of Jesus I want to share with you this morning. There's a picture of Jesus that we can't forget. It's a picture of Jesus responding to prayerlessness in his house. It's very important. It isn't gentle and it isn't humble. But it is right and it is warranted. It's an act of judgment from the Lord against prayerlessness. Jesus displays this act of judgment when he goes into his father's house, the temple, not one time, but two times. At the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry. And in this act of judgment, he destroys for us for a moment that picture of the gentle, humble, merciful Jesus that we love to come to. And he acts out with violence. Warranted as it was. And judgment, right as it is. This picture of Jesus is so important that it's in all four Gospels. Every single Gospel account has it in there. It's that important. It's that profound. You know what kind of stuff is in all four Gospels? The cross and the resurrection. It's that important. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11, please.
Mark chapter 11, we're going to start reading in verse 15. Mark chapter 11, verse 15. It says in verse 15, And they came to Jerusalem, that is Jesus and his disciples. And he, that is Jesus, entered the temple. And he began to cast out those who were buying and selling in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. And he began to teach and to say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. Jesus there is quoting Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. The Lord has declared from the beginning of time, so to speak, that his house, his temple then, his people now, are to be a house of prayer. And anything else will not do. Anything else falls short. Anything else is a perversion thereof. He began to teach them and said, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, and not anything else? There's a context here that we've got to understand. And that is that everybody needed a sacrifice if they were to come to the temple. And according to the law of the Old Testament and also the rabbinical standards, that sacrifice had to be perfect. It had to be blameless. It had to be without blemish. Some people didn't have that sort of animal, and so they'd have to come and buy a sacrifice. Others would come, and the rabbis or the priests, excuse me, at that time, would turn away their sacrifice because some sort of blemish. And then they would have to go buy another one. But there was all sorts of money in the land at that day. There was Roman money, and there was Greek money, and there was Jewish money. But you couldn't use any of that at the temple. The priests who were corrupt, we know from the gospel, set it up so that you could only use priestly money. And so the money sellers would sell you the perfect sacrifice, but they would sell it to you at an exorbitant rate. But first you've got to go exchange your money, and you know they always get you on the exchange. And so it, it become corrupt. And this was all taking place in the outer court known as the court of the Gentiles. Only Jews were allowed in the inner court. But God did have for the nations, the Gentiles, an outer court. And there all the peoples from anywhere in the world, every tongue, tribe, and nation, were to be able to come to the house of the Lord and experience God and His presence and His power and His love and sacrifice to Him and receive His forgiveness and His mercy. But they had crowded up that area with so much commerce and crooked commerce and so much business and busyness. They had perverted a place that was supposed to be sanctified. It was supposed to be holy. It was supposed to be consecrated, set apart. There was a special purpose. This place, this court, was supposed to be for prayer for everybody and anybody. And when Jesus saw it, well, I guess in his righteousness, he just couldn't stand it. So he began to throw the tables over. And it says that he threw the seats over. I wonder if the people were still in them. It doesn't say. He let the animals loose. He threw them and he cast them all out. Remember, this is the second time the Lord has done this. And there's no indication in the text that he's doing it with a smile. Oh, <laughs> oh you sweet little kids, get on out now. Move away. There's no indication in the text. 
In fact, the first time he cleansed the temple gives us a better idea of the mindset and the heart of the Lord at this moment. We're told in John chapter 2 at the beginning of his ministry when he cleansed the temple for the first time that he made there a whip. That the Lord made a whip. Now I suppose in his omniscience, in the fact that he knew everything, that if the Lord made a whip, he purposed on using it. The Lord made a whip in John chapter 2. And he went in there. And we're not given the details except for he turned over the tables and he turned over the chairs. But Jesus had a whip that day. And we're told in verse 16 of John 2 that he said to the people, take these things away. Get them out of here. Clear this space. Clean this space. Free this space. We're told in Mark chapter 11 here in our text in verse 18. And the chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to kill Jesus, how to destroy him. For they were afraid of him, for all the multitude was astonished at his teaching. Those who are sincere and seek the Lord, they didn't have any problem with it. They saw clearly that what the Lord was doing and teaching was absolutely right on. Those with a pure heart before God that were there just wanting to have the Lord were just astonished. Wow, this is gnarly, but this is right. But those who were perverted, those who were corrupt, those whom Jesus called on several occasions the hypocrites, they were afraid. Are you astonished this morning at the Lord with the whip or are you afraid? I hope that you're not afraid. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. The Lord knows when to come with a whip and he knows to come with a hug. He knows just what we need and when we need it. And people, what I'm talking about this morning is our hearts. Our hearts today are the temple of the Lord. We're told of that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, where it tells us that we are the temple of the living God, that we've been bought with a price. The temple in Jerusalem, it's not there. Even at the time of Jesus, the Shekinah glory was not there. But when you become a Christian, the Bible declares that the Lord comes and take up, takes up residence in you. Aren't we told in Revelation 3.20 that he's knocking at the door of the heart? And if you open, he'll come in and he'll fellowship with you. What is the house of the Lord that needs to be cleansed today? It is our hearts. We might draw a parallel from the temple to the church and say, yes, the church needs to be cleansed, and it does. But guess what? The church is made up of people. And the church is not a perfect parallel to the temple. Because the Lord will meet you in any church. But He's taken up residence in you. And what we need to be mindful of today is, is there anything in the outer courts of our hearts, the courts that are to be reserved for praying for others, where others can come and receive prayer, where all the nations can seek the Lord. Is there anything in your heart that needs to be taken away, overturned, or whipped? That it might return to the purpose of prayer. So all the Lord wanted, he didn't ask too much. He just said, guys, just stop it. I just want this place to be a place of prayer. My Father's house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations. There ought to be the aroma and the attitude seeping from the life and the heart of the Christian with regards to prayer. 
And so what we need to ask ourselves is what then is crowding it out? If that's the issue in your heart, I'm telling you right now, it's the issue in my heart. If that's the issue in your heart, that it's overcrowded, that there's too much commerce, there's too much stuff happening in there, what is it that needs to be cast out or whipped out or overturned? I'm sure we wouldn't have to look hard to find some things that we could talk about, laziness being one of them. A little folding of the hands, a little sleep, a little slumber, slumber, and your poverty will come upon you like a thief in the night, Proverbs says. Selfishness, of course, is an easy one. We don't have to look hard. Self-reliance is one. Maybe we've got to look a little deeper. Self-reliance. What are you saying when you don't pray? When you don't come to the Lord in time of need, you're saying, Lord, I am self-reliant. I am self-confident. I am okay. You know what? The Lord says to us from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, you're not okay. You're not okay. I'm not okay. You're not okay. We're not okay. We need the Lord. And in our weakness, his strength is made perfect. Paul said because of that, that he would glory or revel in his weakness. Maybe self-reliance needs to be overturned. Maybe idolatry needs to be whipped out. Maybe it's a person or a possession or a passion that has crowded up your heart. And the Lord wants to come with a whip today and just get that thing out of there, not because he hates you, because he loves you. Because he wants to commune with you through prayer, but there's something that's in the way. Maybe it's entertainment. I know something about this. You know something about this. We are conditioned in this culture to believe that we need to be entertained at every single moment. In fact, people bring it into church. I hear it. I hear it. I hear it. Make it a good one today. Oh, be funny. Oh, it's got to be good. People want to be entertained all the time. You know what? That's wrong. God did not create us so he could entertain us. Newsflash. He created us for his pleasure. And he might be kind to us and that we might experience his goodness and glorify his name. It's easy to find laziness and selfishness and self-reliance and idolatry and too much entertainment. God is already dealing with us on those things, church. He's been talking to us about those things for four weeks already. He's already talking to us about those things. But there are four things, specific things, that I want to highlight just momentarily, very briefly. Four specific things that must be dealt with in our hearts for us to have an effective prayer life. Those four things, very simply, are number one, a lack of faith. Must deal with that today. Number two, disobedience. Disobedience must be dealt with for us to have an effective prayer life. Number three, wrong motives. If we've got wrong motives before the Lord, the Lord wants to handle that today that we might be more effective in prayer. And number four, our will. Our will has got to be consumed by His. It's got to become subservient to His. It's got to be submitted to His. Nevertheless, not our will be done, but your will be done, Lord. Those four things have got to be dealt with if you will have an effective prayer life. And the Lord has got us camping out on prayer for some time, so you might as well do it effectively. Faith, obedience, right motives, and God's will are prerequisites for effective prayer. Number one, faith. Number one, faith. James chapter 1. Don't turn there. We're going to look at something in Mark 11 again. But James 1 verses 5 through 8 says, 
But if any of you lacks wisdom, wisdom is a context here, but the principle is going to have to do with faith. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. That is just a radical passage of Scripture. James is such a challenging book. Do you know that there are saints of old, and I'll spare you their names right now, but there are saints of old who said James shouldn't even be in the Bible. James and Revelation, we ought to do away with them. They're just too gnarly. They're just too radical. Why? (laughs) Stuff like this. Verse 7. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. I remind you in the Gospels in Mark chapter 13, excuse me, Matthew chapter 13, verse 58, that it says of Jesus in his hometown that Jesus did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. He did not do many miracles. Not that he could not. He did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Because they refused to have faith in the Lord, the Lord said, fine. Then you will not receive all the blessings that could have been yours. You see how prayer is a conduit. And faith is is necessary for effective prayer. He did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Now, what I am not teaching about is a heresy that is taught in the church frequently. That if you just have enough faith, you can make God do anything. Faith teachers in the faith movement, the prosperity movement. That's a false doctrine. That if we just had enough faith, we can make the Lord do anything. We're going to see in a minute that that's ridiculous when we talk about God's will. But faith is a necessary component for prayer. Don't ever let anybody tell you, if you pray for your Aunt Betty to be healed by the Lord and she dies, that it's your fault because you didn't have enough faith. That is destructive. That is wrong. That is not what the Bible is trying to teach us. But it is simply trying to say that when we come to the Lord, we must come with faith. What about the Apostle Paul? I would make the argument that nobody in human history had more faith than the Apostle Paul. And he had a thorn in his flesh, some sort of ailment. And he asked the Lord three times to remove it. And the Lord said, no, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. Would someone then have us believe that Paul because of his lack of faith, brought that upon himself, that it was his own fault, that if he only really believed, he could have forced God to do it. That is not what the Bible is saying. Please, if you see that on TV, turn it off. If you hear that from a pulpit, leave. That's not what the Bible teaches. It's a destructive heresy. But the Bible does teach that we need to have faith. And that without faith, we shouldn't expect much. I mean, it's logical and it makes sense. You know what faith does? Faith honors the character of God. That's why it's so important. It honors the character of God. We're told in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, that without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. You see, you can't come to God with just any attitude. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. 
And faith means that you come believing that He is, that He is who He reveals Himself to be in Scripture, and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. And now when we come to Him with that attitude, we learn there in James chapter 1, verse 5, that the Lord will give to you liberally. Without discrimination, the Lord wants to give us what we have need of. But I would forward to you that the lack of faith is an insult to God. It's just an insult to God, just plain and simple. It's just wrong. There was Jesus in his hometown of Nazareth, and they said, we don't believe you. And the Lord said, then I won't heal you. I'm out of here. I mean, can you imagine if I go to my wife and I say, sweetheart, I'd like to take you out on a date tonight. Go get dressed, get ready. We're going to go out on a date. It's going to be awesome. I'm going to bless you, baby. And she just stood there. I said, honey, what are you doing? Go get dressed. Go do what you do. Go do stuff. Put, put, go, 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 go. And she just stood there. I said, honey, sweetheart, what are you doing? Why aren't you getting ready? And she were to say to me, I don't believe you. What do you mean you don't believe me? I don't believe you. What don't you believe? I don't believe that you want to bless me. I don't believe you're going to take me out, and I don't believe you want to show me a good time, and I don't believe you have good things in store. I don't believe you. Now, if I had a record of lying to her, then she would be in the right to say that. But I don't lie to my wife. I haven't lied to my wife. Not that I know of, honey. (laughs) Now, the Lord is not a man that he should lie. And the Lord has been faithful to every generation. The Lord has never failed anyone, and he's not going to blow his reputation on you. And so you, can you see how me, a fallible, imperfect man, would be horribly insulted if my wife said, I don't believe you, I'm not going to put my clothes on to go out with you. I mean, it would break my heart. How much more is it insulting to a perfect God when we just don't believe? We just don't believe his promises and his character and his goodness and his ability. I mean, church, it's just plain wrong. And the Bible says, don't expect much. We learned in Luke chapter 18 where we talked about importunity, persistence with insistence in prayer, that Jesus wants to bring about justice for those who cry to him day and night speedily. But he ends in Luke 18, 8 by saying, but will the Son of Man find faith on earth when he comes? Matthew 14, verse 31 Immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? Who's him? Peter. This is when Peter was walking on the water. Peter had this incredible moment of faith and said, Lord, if it's you, then bid me to come to you. And the Lord said, Come on, Pete. Peter jumped down out of that boat and he began to walk on water. But what happened? We're told in Matthew 14 that when he saw the wind and the waves, in other words, put very simply, when he got his eyes off the Lord and onto the circumstances, he began to sink into those circumstances. And what was the response of the Lord? The Lord said, why did you doubt? He grabbed him. The Lord is faithful even when we're faithless. The Lord grabbed him and pulled him up out of the water, but he said, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Well, if we could fill in the blanks for Peter, I doubt it because I got my eyes off of you, Lord, and I got my eyes on the circumstances, and it got scary, and I just didn't believe that you were going to take care of me. Man, when you get that attitude, brother, sister, you sink. 
That's what happened to Peter. He began to sink, and it is a lack of faith. Here in our text, in Mark 11, verse 22, Jesus was saying to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you that whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it shall be granted him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they shall be granted to you. Notice that he says, have faith in God there in verse 22. Not have faith in faith. Have faith in God. Believe. All things are possible with God. Now there are some caveats, and we're going to talk about them in just a moment. We've got to be walking in obedience. We've got to have right motives. And the things that we ask for have got to be according to God's will. We are not smarter than God. God is not going to do something against His character and nature because we think it wise or good or neat. He doesn't do that. But according to the context of His will, all things that we ask for, and if we say to this mountain, if it be the will of God, be uprooted and be planted in the sea or this tree or whatever, it shall be done according to our faith. But our faith is in God who is absolutely faithful. Jesus said in Matthew 17, 20, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you could say this mountain be moved and it shall be moved. Now what is it about a mustard seed? It's tiny. I used to have one taped in the front of my Bible. I think I lost it. I did. I lost it. But I used to have one. It's tiny. But what is significant about a mustard seed? Well, like any other seed, it's alive. That is the point. Jesus didn't say that you necessarily had to have a ton of faith. Just have faith that is alive. What does it mean that it's alive? It means it's active. It means that it asks, seeks, and knocks. Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened up to you. That's faith like a mustard seed. Faith that is alive. Faith that seeks the Lord. And that is the sort of faith that we've got to come before the Lord with. And so I ask us this morning, is there any unbelief in your heart that must be overturned today? Any unbelief that's got to be whipped out, cast out, chased out by the Lord? Overturned. Doesn't that remind you of another word that we love so much? Repent. Overturn is like this. Repent is like that. Is there any unbelief in your life that needs to be repented of today? Golly, do it today. Maybe you've just given up hope. You just aren't trusting the Lord for a situation. You've just turned your back. You've just walked away. Don't do that. Let the Lord restore your faith today. But remember, obedience. Look in the next verse, verse 25, Mark chapter 11. This is point two, obedience. Mark 11, verse 25, Jesus says, And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your transgressions. Verse 26 is not in all the ancient manuscripts, excuse me, So some Bibles have it and some don't. The King James and the New American Standard, they have it. The NIV doesn't. Don't trip out about it too bad. Verse 26. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. Even if it wasn't in a certain ancient manuscript, Jesus already said that in the Sermon on the Mount. So we know that the Lord has said that statement. It's absolutely biblical. It's correct. It's right. But if you have a New American Standard, New King James, it's in there. But if you're anything like me, you're convicted by verse 25. You're not even too worried about verse 26. You barely even got there. You were undone by verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven 
may forgive your transgressions. Now, this is a family situation. This is not talking about the forgiveness of sins for salvation. This is talking about the forgiveness of sins for intimacy. This is talking about in our daily lives when we transgress. The idea is given to us in 1 John 1, 9, which is not salvific, meaning it doesn't have to do with salvation. It's a family thing. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us, to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. As Christians, we know we need to confess our sins to the Lord. And when we do, there is intimacy restored. When we don't, well, then we're like David in Psalm 32, where we feel like our very life juices are drying up, just dying in that conviction. Jesus says here, very clearly, without mentioning any words, that for our prayer lives to be effective, there's got to be obedience. Not that any of us is perfect, nor is Jesus hearing us simply works-based. But do not live like hell and expect to receive all the blessings of heaven. It simply doesn't work that way. God will not be mocked. We will reap what we sow. And we cannot expect to just do whatever we want to do and then say, oh God, bless me. Oh God, do this and that and the other. It just doesn't work that way. 1 John chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. This is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commands us. John 15, 7, Jesus says, If you abide in me, that's talking about obedience, abiding. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. There is tied to the effectiveness of our prayer life the general tenor of our, our, of our obedience. If you are walking in disobedience, you simply cannot expect the Lord to pour out all the blessings that he has for you in prayer. Just think of your own children. So many of you are parents. When they disobey you, they're not getting the new dirt bike. They're not getting the new surfboard. He's not getting the keys to the car this weekend. You understand what I'm saying? And so with the Lord, just look at Judges chapter 10, verses 10 through 14. Then the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, for indeed we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. The Lord said to the sons of Israel, Didn't I deliver you from the Egyptians? and the Amorites, the sons of Ammon, and the Philistines, also when the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you, you cried out to me, and I delivered you from their hands. Yet you forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will no longer deliver you. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of distress. Oh, wow. If you're anything like me, you're just extremely humbled right now. And you just know you've got some business to do with the Lord. Listen, he's got us camping out on prayer. We might as well make our prayers effective. And that requires faith and a degree of obedience in our lives. Not that everything is works-based. Remember, it is a throne of grace. But again, God will not be mocked. Psalm sixty-six, eighteen says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. 
James 5.16 says the fervent prayer of a righteous man is effective and accomplishes it much. Of course, we have positional righteousness because we're saved, but don't neglect practical righteousness. Proverbs 15.8, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. Proverbs 15.29, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. 1 Peter 3.12, if you want to bring it into the new covenant, for the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You cannot expect to live like hell and receive all the blessings of heaven. It's just not biblical. And so I ask us, is there anything in your life that needs to be overturned, cast out, whipped out? Church, let the Lord do it. The cloud ain't moving till it happens. Points number three and four, very quickly, they're very brief. Point number four, we've got to check our motives. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is, it not, the sor- is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You have not because you ask not. Now look at verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. For effective prayer, we need faith. We need to be abiding in Christ, walking in obedience. And we need to be aware of our motives. Now, it's a wonderful prayer to pray, Lord, refine my motives. I'll be honest with you. I've I've got to pray it all the time in my ministry and in my life. Lord, refine my motives. You know, the Bible says in Jeremiah 17 that the heart is desperately wicked and full of deceit. Who can know it? Sometimes we can't even discern our own heart. I think I'm doing this for the right reasons. Lord, I think I'm praying this for the right reasons. But gosh, Lord, if, if I'm to be totally honest, I can't really tell. Lord, refine my motives. It's a wonderful prayer to pray. God is so faithful to do that because he wants to answer prayer. And if he answers no, it's so often because our motives are wrong. It's some selfish thing. When I was a little kid, I was uh, in the middle of grade school, probably, I think, fourth grade. And I went to main school right here across the street. That's where I went to school, was the president in sixth grade. And um, every year the school would have a bike rodeo. And the bike rodeo was a big deal. All the kids brought their bikes, and they would set up cones out on the blacktop there, and you would ride through the cones, and they would test your bike, and they'd check the lights, and they'd tighten the chain, and they'd make sure your bike was all ship-shape, and they'd make you go through the little cones and stop and start, and you get a little prize at the end, and it was awesome. But of course, you know, I was carnal, like all other kids at that age, I think. And I didn't have, I'm sorry, mom and dad, my mom and dad are here, but I didn't have at that time what in my fleshly mind was the coolest bike. You see, I had a Huffy. You know what I'm talking about. I had a Huffy. My Huffy had a chain guard on it. Those aren't cool. My Huffy had the U handlebars. Those weren't cool anymore then. My Huffy had a banana seat. (laughs) 
I didn't want to take my huffy to school. I was raised in a Christian home. I purposed to pray. Oh, man, was I importune. I tell you, I was persistent and insistent. I testify before God today that I prayed almost all night. You see the old Safeway over here? There used to be a bike store right next to it. Now it's some pet food joint. But there used to be a a bike store there. And in that bike, they had a red line. Anybody remember red lines? Those were the cool bikes. They didn't have chain guards. They didn't have the U handlebars. They had the cross that went across there. And and it was alloy, and it was red, and it was white, and it was awesome. And I wanted it. (laughs) And I had faith in God. Parents raised me in a Christian home. I had faith in the Lord. I tell you, as God is my witness, I prayed all night. Lord, give me the bike. Don't make me go to school with my huffy. I want the red line. I'm telling you, as God is my witness, I prayed all night. And I was 100% convinced when I got up in the morning that that red line would be on the porch. I was absolutely sure of it. I got up at first dawn. I ran to the front door. I threw open the door. No red line. I thought maybe it's in the garage. I threw open the garage. The huffy. Black and yellow with sparkles in the banana seat. My faith was shipwrecked. I could, how could I believe in God anymore? I prayed in faith all night long. Lord, this is the best thing. If only I had the red line. Lord, it makes so much sense. You ask and you do not have because you have wrong motives. They're selfish. Sometimes we just need to have our motives dealt with by the Lord. He just needs to whip out some selfishness. He just needs to help us discern what those motives are. We just need to say, Lord, help my heart. We're just told, you have not because you ask not, but if you ask and you don't have, maybe it's because your motives are wrong. Last point, very quickly, we must pray according to God's will. 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. We know that, of course. We're not smarter than God. We're not going to make him do something that is not according to his character and his ways. But we do see that sometimes his ways, it is acceptable within his will to bring judgment on people or to extend mercy. And we saw in Exodus 32, the only thing that made the difference was that a man asked. It's not that extending mercy was against God's will. God always wants to extend mercy. But will we ask? And will we ask in faith? And will we walk in obedience? And will we let the Lord refine our motives? And when we ask according to his will, we will see God do things that are unimaginable, unbelievable, beyond us, more than we ever even thought to ask the Lord will do. He's longing to bless us. Come to me if you're weary and heavy laden. The conduit for all the blessings of God is prayer. And so here's your homework this week for your home groups. You have no doubt written those four points. Come ready to discuss those. Come ready to confess. Come ready to share. Come ready to encourage one another. Pray for one another. Come ready to talk about faith. 
motives, God's will. Come ready to talk about obedience. Meditate for the next couple days on those four points. And God will deal with us in our home groups. Now we're just going to worship the Lord. And our prayer for this worship time is that we just see him more clearly. Because you know what? I think if we see the Lord more clearly, that faith is going to go through the roof. I think if we could just see the Lord more clearly in worship, that obedience is not going to be such a problem. I think if we could just see the Lord in worship, that he would just refine our motives because of his holy presence. And if we would just experience the presence of God, we would be so quick to say, Lord, your will, always your will, for your person and your church. Amen? Lord, thank you. We ask that now as we worship you, that you would be honored and blessed in our praises, that you would come and inhabit the praises of your people, and that you would just reveal yourself powerfully here, Lord. We need more of you. And yet it's wonderful, Lord, you're asking for more of us. You're calling us to come to you in prayer in a new way, in a fresh dimension, deeper than ever before. I'm reminded of the scripture, draw near to the Lord and he will draw near to you. So Lord, we want to do that now. We just ask that you would snap every heart to attention with the glory of your presence and the Holy Spirit, you would come now and work in us and on us that you might powerfully work through us for your glory.